This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley how much is enough how big a pay rise do you want this year how big a pay rise do you need what's the right amount to ask for what's the right amount to settle for Inflation is running at, what, 10%, expected to go even higher. Can you really have a 10% pay rise? What happens if that does go ahead? Do employers start laying off people or putting up prices, which means you need even higher pay rises? That's the big thing we're looking at today, the maths of how pay rises actually work. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. No David Aronovich today. He does love a spa break. So instead, Daniel Finkstein is joined by Manvin Rana. Uh, nice to uh, nice to have you both here. I suppose we should talk first of all about or not so much about the Chris Pincher story, which has been sort of uh, picked over. Uh, we, we sort of know what's gone on here now. But uh, Danny, the 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 shifting number ten version of events, and in particular the impact it has on cabinet ministers, government ministers sent out to pedal the line, which keeps changing. Uh, how does, how serious is that for Boris Johnson? Given that we have been around this block many times before, it's impossible. There's no way he can survive this. This is the straw that's broken the camel's back. Uh, but how serious do you think this covered straw is? Yes, it's quite serious. I think that, um, interestingly enough, that there's a strand of Conservative MPs who still voted for him in the vote of no confidence, Um who won't tolerate him being caught out in a direct lie. And I know that may sound extremely odd to those people like me who thought that it was obvious that he was telling direct lies and therefore that he had to resign before the vote of no confidence. Um, But nevertheless, there is such a strand. I've come across those people and I think it's damaging for him. But, But as I said, the moment the vote of no confidence happened, he has gained a degree of insulation from that. So um, he will get some protection. The The big issue is whether or not ministers uh, begin to move against him. I did think it was quite interesting that Greg Hands, um, the uh, who's yes. Minister of State, yeah, yeah, yeah. tweeted that he disapproved of the 
decision to close the fast stream applications for the civil service. That's a very odd thing for a minister to do. And it reminded me a bit of when Theresa May began to lose authority. One of the ways that it happened was not ministerial resignations, but just simply ministers saying whatever they wanted. So this is Greg Hans, a serving government minister, tweeted last night, it makes perfect sense to control the size of government and ask why it has grown since 2016. It makes no sense to say like this, that for one year the best and the brightest aren't welcome to serve the country. So after someone posted uh, confirmation, the fast stream of sort of bright young things to enter the civil service has been uh, suspended. I suppose that's the thing. And I suppose what essentially, instead of resigning, what ministers are doing is daring Boris Johnson to sack them. Yes. Which is what basically Theresa May didn't have the authority to do. And it's, it's questionable as well, not Boris Johnson. Exactly. Did. So I think that because uh, ministers are the thing that now protects him, he's got to be able to, you know, any prime minister has to be able to form a government in order to be able to form a government. <laughs> um, if you see what I mean, uh, they've got to be able to call on people to serve. If you get ministers beginning to do whatever they want, not adhering to collective responsibility, um, that makes it difficult to be prime minister. I think that um, in Boris Johnson's case, it wouldn't lead him to resigning because I don't think anything will. I think the only thing that will lead him to resigning is the certainty that he'll be removed if he doesn't. Um, and I don't think that'll happen for a while. Um, so um, I think that um, the, the consequence of the decision the Conservative Party made, I, uh, one of the arguments I made about this vote of no confidence, if you're going to vote confidence in him, not only do you have to be sure that this is going to pass, the party gate thing, you have to be sure he won't do something similar to this again. <laughs> and everything said to me, he will do something like this again. Well, this isn't exactly the same, but it's of a similar kind. And Conservative MPs must now face the idea this will happen repeatedly and will happen all the way to the election. And you either side, it, it doesn't matter, but either morally or electorally, I think it matters in both senses. Um, or you um, or, and or you decide you're going to have to remove him at some point. But it won't happen immediately because he has gained some insulation. Manveen, as, as a sort of one step removed from the Westminster village that uh, Danny and I are the <laughs> resident village idiots in, uh, what do you make of what do you make of this story and the way it's unfolding? And actually, it was one of those things. That it felt like something at the end of last week. It was a it was a guy that nobody's ever heard of. He's already resigned. I mean, it's not great, but maybe it'll blow over. And, and, and you know, it, this story seems to be gaining legs by the hour. Oh, it's a hell of a plot twist. And just this morning, you know, the drama unfolding between Dominic Raab doing the rounds and then Simon MacDonald has just been extraordinary. I mean, it's amazing to watch. Um, I just, I, I completely agree with Danny on sort of, you know, the, the discipline of ministers is going to be a real issue now. I just wonder if... You know, he's right. I think Boris Johnson has bought himself a bit of insulation, having won that vote of no confidence. But every time I speak to a Tory, and I'm not in, in, in the Westminster village, but whenever I speak to people in the party, they always sort of preface anything they say about Boris Johnson and his leadership with just a reminder of how easy it is to change the rules that would allow another vote of confidence in him. And many of them often sort of cite the, the Privileges Committee um, investigation into whether he lied to Parliament and how that might spark something. And I just think it... You know, incidents like this, it just feels like number 10 is almost doubling down, thinking you're already being investigated for lying. So um, set yourself up in a situation where on every broadcast news media this morning, you've got a very senior civil servant calling you out for, for misleading the public. Um, I, I don't know. I just I feel like there, there might be a bit more of a, a, a backbench revolt. And, you know, we do have this election coming up with the 1922 committee. Um, I just, I just, I mean, I'd love to know. I mean, Danny, how, how soon that might actually bear an effect? The, the idea of um, them 
having a change of rules, for example, is just I don't I just don't think they're going to do that immediately because there's a big strand of people who don't want to do that for procedural reasons, and I get the reason why they don't want to do it. Actually, because those people are a bit more concerned about you know fair play. Yeah, look, that you look, don't change the rules. In I the was of the involved game. in setting those rules in the first place when I worked for William Hague, and the purpose of having a year grace is so that you wouldn't have continuous leadership elections. It, it's very consequential if people call a, a vote of no confidence and they decide, and and it's won uh, by one side or another, right? That, that, in Theresa May's case, it was obvious that he, she was going to be removed eventually because you could see she wouldn't last a full year. And she was always going to decide that in order to get what she hoped was she would get her uh, policy through if she resigned a bit earlier. And it was worth doing because she could see the period expiring um, in a year's time. So she was willing to make that sacrifice. That's why she resigned. Boris Johnson just isn't under any of those impulses. I I, I do think if there's a a, um, now a Standards and Privileges Committee ruling against him, the rules probably will be changed earlier. But if not, you know, I can see this continuing, however awkward it is, for quite a lot longer, just because there is that block against continually changing the rules, which is an understandable an understandable block, actually. I, 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 I've got some sympathy with it. Uh, it reminds me a bit, Manveen, uh, Danny talking about the Theresa May days. Um, our former colleague, Francis Elliott, when he was the political editor, used to say that the situation is completely unsustainable, but will go on for ages. Uh, <laughs> the, the, it, of course it's unsustainable, the position that Theresa May was in. She couldn't get anything through, but in the absence of anything else coming along... She's just every morning she got up, she was still prime minister, and uh, and unless and until something else changes that, she was still prime minister. And it feels a bit the same with Boris Johnson. There lots of people are saying this is unacceptable. You can't possibly, he can't possibly come back from this. Look, you know, and actually, if you look at the polls, you know, the Tory MPs are kidding themselves. I think it's all going to be right in the end. But unless they can find a way to remove him or dramatically change his personality so he suddenly decides to resign voluntarily. <laughs> This unsustainable situation will sustain. Seems unlikely. I mean, I'm interested that that, that Danny thinks the privileges, privileges committee might might be the thing that changes the rules. That yeah. might be the flashpoint. Well, I I think that that would provide the um, the 1922 with an unprecedented situation. The prime minister of the day, you know, and it and therefore would allow them to say, well, we wouldn't change the rules generally, but we might in these circumstances. Um, so I, I can I can imagine that happening. Yes, and. There is definitely this. What's happened now is over Pincher is definitely broadening the range of people who have had enough um, from just those people who, you know, to Boris Johnson's route to survival was um, 148 people voted against me, but a lot of them did it on parties because they didn't want to go on the television or radio defending that anymore. You try to move on from parties and thing that you do most of all is make sure that you don't commit any errors that are like parties the problem with that a bit like actually it was with parties themselves the mistake itself with pincher was already in the past right he'd already done mm. the things that now people are accusing but he can't undo them right so the the, the obvious um way out of this particular crisis is to have not appointed Chris Pincher in a, to his position but he did that already so I don't think he can avoid a series of these and this will not be this will not this has obviously not the first one but it'll not be the last and Tory MPs will just have to understand that with him as leader there will be a continual flow of these things now I should say to be fair to Boris Johnson this has this sort of thing has happened 
to every prime minister. And one of the reasons it happens, you work closely with colleagues uh, and you uh, they become people that you know personally. You forgive their foibles, even though they're obvious to external people. You get drawn into it. People That happens in every workplace, actually. Um, and good process means that those kind of biases aren't allowed to persist. There's some sort of human resources process, which means that those individual yeah, biases yeah. don't let you reappoint people, don't let you keep people. And where they break down, um, you know, as they have done here, and, you know, to use a, an even more serious example in the Catholic Church, they did, and people got reappointed to place Where they break down, it's it's extremely um, serious problem. Uh, so the, the to, this is not a unique... Uh, situation, but it's quite a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh... I, I just think. I just think when you've got a situation where the prime minister's wife seems to be briefing to the papers that she was warning about how bad Chris Pincher was, um, and you've got you've got the Daily Mail writing this up, it just feels like something has really changed. Yeah. So this is the story that um, she wrote when she was the director of communications for the Conservative Party. Carrie, uh, um, then Carrie uh, Simmons raised complaint, raised concerns about the idea of appointing. Uh, Chris Pincher to a job um, and obviously he did and then was subsequently returned um, but yeah I suppose it, it just, a lot of this just seems to be semantics of what what was a, a confirmed serious substantial investigated allegation or not but none of that um, I'm not sure is going to hold I, mean, I suppose the big question is does someone like Therese Coffey not a household name but does she just think this is ridiculous I've been made to go on TV oh. and I look like a right Charlie they lied to me or some, somebody's lied somewhere, I've had enough. Oh, well, that's what happened with Oliver Dowden. That's why Oliver Dowden yeah. um, resigned. I, I haven't spoken to him in detail about his, uh, his reasoning, but I did on uh, one occasion speak to him about what on earth would he say after the next set of by-elections. Yeah. You know, so I know that that was on his mind, and I think he just thought to himself, I don't want to make a media round in which I say things I don't really believe, and I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm only told half the story. Mm. As she, and the, these, you know, quite a lot of people, I think Therese Coffey is one of those people, they're actually kind of decent, honest individuals themselves, and they're being dragged into this. And it is very difficult. Where, when do you draw the line? What yeah. is enough? Is enough? You know, and, and actually, the, sometimes the deeper you get into it, Manveen, the harder it is to get out of it. Well, I've already done this six times. Why do I resign <laughs> on the seventh? Oh no, you're, you're right. I mean, in, in a way, that's kind of what everybody was watching Lord Guyte for. Um, and then you know, when it came, it was something completely different. I mean, I do think there's something quite interesting just in in the HR processes around this too, though. You know. Um, it, it's true, you know, a lot of the semantics in the interviews this morning have been sort of saying, well, he, you know, there was a disciplinary investigation. He was found to have, you know, the, the con- misconduct was confirmed, but there was no, you know, um, there was no sort of disciplinary action after that. And I think that's that's quite difficult, too, because it's it's quite a depressing turn of phrase. And it just makes you realise that quite often, I suppose, in, in Westminster, that probably happens anyway. You know, people don't want to push for for something to be done about it after it's already been investigated and it feels like somebody's been found to have committed, you know, to, to have done something wrong. Um, and I just think it's quite hard for ministers to be making that, you know, it's quite depressing too that they're sort of saying, well, in that case, it's okay. Um, I'd just be tempted to always ask any minister who said that how many how many times they'd had misconduct confirmed against them that hadn't led to a, an official disciplinary action. I mean, that that just, was all very weird. It makes it... 
makes it feel like it's really perfectly normal. And the Dominic Raab line, which I just didn't understand about how they'd concluded that Chris Pinch was not subject to any civil service disciplinary process. Well, I'm not sure how he ever could be, because he's a minister, he's not a civil yeah. servant. The problem with going on those programmes, if you're Dominic Raab, is what do you say? Yeah. Right? So the mistake... the mistake... And actually, he was very open, to be fair to Dominic Raab. He didn't just say, I'm not discussing that with a private... You know, he, he did walk us through exactly what went on and what he did and how he had reprimanded Chris Pincher in some form. It just fell down at the last point when it got to what the Prime Minister knew. Yes. Well, that's a... I think from afar, people watching that will sort of think if he was reprimanded, if there was this process, even if there is no official sanction, how on earth do you end up in a job of, of such responsibility yeah. again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's not a great look. If you're it's bo- extraordinary. Yeah. And also, it's not just a job of responsibility. He wasn't just like the tra- rail minister or something. He was a deputy chief whip in charge of discipline and, you know, HR complaints and concerns. And, you know, yeah. the whips are the people you're supposed to go to with, I'm concerned about the behaviour of this person, not the... the Yeah, anyway. Anyway, we haven't, I'm not, unfortunately, but we haven't got, really got enough time to discuss Keir Starmer's uh, approach to, to Brexit, Danny. Uh, were you excited <laughs> by... Somebody suggested this morning that they finally got a slogan of the Labour Party, uh, make Brexit better. That doesn't feel like a slogan that the Labour Party are going to fight an election yeah, on. I, I understand the position he's taken. It has long been my view that he is chasing the wrong demographic, um, and this is part of it. I don't think they should have... Ex- I, 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 you know, for the Labour Party, I think this is not a, probably not the right position to be in. And that is controversial, because I can see why some people think, you know, if they didn't take this position, they wouldn't win the next general election, because it would all be about Brexit, and that's what the Tories want. Um, but I think that he took really quite a sort of negative um, position on his previous stance on Remain. I'm not sure how convincing that really is. Also, there is part of me that just thinks, although we, I keep talking about we can't mention Brexit, PMQs and all of that, uh, I'm not sure yesterday was quite the moment to open this. There's <laughs> everything substantial to really to say. And uh, he's just seemed to have opened a new front on his own side, just as the Conservative Party is collapsing. So uh, whoever it was aimed at probably isn't going to notice. Manveen Rana and Daniel Finkelstein there. Uh, Manveen, you can catch on the Stories of Our Times podcast. Search for that wherever you get your podcasts from. It's a daily podcast from The Times. And, of course, you can read Danny every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how much is enough? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, 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 yes. So we're talking money. We've all been working very hard. So isn't it time we all got some extra pay in our pockets? Yeah, inflation is on the up. Depending on which uh, measurement you use, the prices we're paying for stuff right now is, what, 10 11% higher than last year and expected to go higher still. And if your wages aren't rising at the same uh, amounts, then we're all left with less money in our pocket at the end of the month. We've already seen strikes across a number of industries as workers try to defend their pay packets from the effects of inflation. Most significantly, the RMT union led disruptive strikes across the railways recently. But when I asked Eddie Dempsey, the union's assistant general secretary, how much money he wanted for his pay rise, exactly what pay rise they wanted, here's what he told me. Well, we haven't put any percent, we haven't put any um, definite figure forward. So in the first instance, our members are most concerned about job security because, you know, you can't have a pay rise if you don't have a job. So that's number one on the agenda for railway workers. Um, we haven't put a figure on the, on, the, on the pay rise, but we do know that the industry has to respect our members and they're in the third year of a pay freeze and they've worked very hard during the pandemic. Uh, and cost of living crisis is, is, is really biting and people are feeling the pinch. Uh, that was Eddie Dempsey from the RMT union. Not able to put a figure on what a good pay rise actually is. So I asked Paul Johnson, director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, he's on the show every other Monday. I asked him... What's the right sort of pay rise this year? Well, I, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable for everyone to want a pay rise at least in line with inflation, isn't it? Otherwise, their their earnings go down. It is worth saying that the government, and they've done a terrible job of communicating this, the government really are putting a lot of money into people's pockets this year, particularly if you're a sort of moderate earner on, say, 30000 20000 a year. The amount that you're getting off your energy bill, off your council tax bill, um, off uh, and, and so on, off, off national insurance contributions is probably enough to make sure you're not going to be worse off this year than last, even if you only get 4 or 5% pay rise. Um, but of course, you know, if the government then withdraws that and you just get an inflation pay rise next year, then you'll be worse off in the long run. Um, so look, you know, if any group of workers completely understand why they want to get inflation rise of 10%, the trouble is if all of us get 10% inflation rises, then inflation will be high again next year and the year after, and we'll end up being in a much more difficult position in the long run when we're forced into some horrible recession to squeeze inflation out of the system. And then I suppose the, and the, the counterpoint is if everyone, you know, got 10 15% pay rises, lots of businesses would probably, the only way to fund that might be to lay people off, and then you end up, you know, that's probably worse than everyone feeling the squeeze and not getting inflation uh, size pay rise. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, they'd, they'd either lay people off or they'd put their prices up by 10, 15% or some combination of the two. And that's the real problem that, uh, you know, there are some, some businesses who can afford it, some who would, um, some who can pass through price increases, some who would uh, reduce the level of employment. But the overall effect of everyone getting 10 or 15% this year will be much worse for our living standards in the long run than if everyone gets 5%. That was Paul Johnson of the Institute of Fiscal Studies speaking to me on the show yesterday. We're still trying to get our head around that. What is the right level of pay rise? So uh, in, in a moment, we're going to hear from Frances O'Grady. She's the General Secretary of the TUC to accept our, see if she'll accept our, our terms and come on the show. Uh, we'll also get a perspective from uh, someone who used to work at the Bank of England and the former Treasury Minister, David Gorks. We'll do that in just a moment. But first, let's, let's crunch through where the economy is right now. Maureen Khan is the Economics Editor of The Times and joins me now. Morning. Morning. Uh, remind us um, what is what is fueling inflation. So, if you look at the, the figures right now, is what the, the headline figure from the Office of National Statistics is it's up seven point nine percent, but everyone thinks it's going to go higher still, double figures by the autumn. What is driving that? So, for the moment, a vast majority, and I think it's around three quarters or eighty percent, according to the Bank of England, of inflation in the UK is be- being driven by external factors, which is the fact that our energy prices and our food prices are going up because of various things that have happened in the world, including the war in Ukraine, including rising global demand, particularly across Asia, for gas and oil, which then drives up the market prices, which we also have to pay here in the UK. And a very specific thing to the UK. Because actually in Britain, we will suffer at least at its peak much higher inflation than the US and probably even Europe at 11 percent, according to the bank. So it's much worse here. And and according to the Bank of England, that's because of the way we set electricity prices. So people in October will get their bill, their twice yearly bill. And because that will reflect quite a big jump from the last bill they got in April, inflation in October is going to hit 11 percent. So there are some factors which make the British case much worse than, for example, what's happening out in the US and also in Europe. Because sometimes I think it's it's almost the case of the UK is having the worst of both worlds, which is lots of external factors driving up prices, but also an economy which is running um, pretty tight. So unemployment is very low. And as, we've, as you've just spoken about, people are asking for higher wages. So that could drive prices longer uh, and make them much more persistent going into next year too. And actually, if we look at the, uh, I suppose the, the 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 impact of COVID is is striking both on inflation as we've come out. That's you know fuel demand that's pushed up prices. But I mean, the, the what's happened on pay has been interesting as well. So the middle of last year, uh, ONS reported uh, average growth in wages over three months up nine percent. So was, so big pay rises, you know, as recorded by national figures rather than individual. They're they're not uh, unknown. But actually, if you look at the pre-COVID period, we're sort of bouncing around two, two and a half percent pay rises for, for large periods, a bit higher than that, uh, so it was sort of just over a decade ago. What do you think will be where we end up with uh, when it comes to uh, pay rises? Is, this, is the inflation uh, spike a blip and therefore something that everyone tightens their belts for 12 months and then we get through it? Or is, it, is higher inflation, a per, you know, higher costs are going to be a permanent fixture of the economy? And therefore, we do need to move towards the high wage economy the government promised. 
it's 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 interesting to step back and think what was the UK, what are the big structural trends in the UK that have been going on for nearly 20 years? And one of them definitely is stagnating wage growth and even falling real pay. So that's something that we saw during the financial crisis. There's an argument that Brexit is also going to make that worse. So in the, in the longer run, British workers have been suffering when it comes to their relative bargaining power on how to get pay rises. So it's an interesting question that now we're in a high inflationary world. Is any of that going to shift? Are these structural forces going to change? For now, the argument we would have to make just looking at the numbers is that no, there's no real evidence of that. So even at the beginning of this year, uh, when we include things like bonuses, pay was up about 7%, but it's still lagging behind inflation. Most people don't actually get bonuses. So pay growth was around 4% to 5%, which is slightly higher than, than it has been in the last previous years, but it's still far, far behind inflation. There is an argument that actually the, the general story of the world economy over the last 20 or 30 years has been that Labour now is in a much weaker bargaining position when it comes to trying to demand pay rises, which is what happened in the 70s when Labour was very powerful, as in workers were very powerful because they were unionised and the unions had a stranglehold on wage bargaining negotiations. Um, in the UK, that story has been told and it's a story of relative decline. I think it's more likely, and, and listening to what businesses are saying, they're basically saying that they are struggling to protect their margins and they're also struggling to keep up with their wage, with pay demands from employers, employees. So what they're doing is maybe trying to offer things that are sort of non-monetary benefits that you can offer a worker because you understand that they're suffering because of high inflation. So you offer them things like more flexible working hours, the ability to work from home, on-the-job training, upskilling of some sort to keep them it want in employment, but also feel make them feel that they are valued, and as an employer, you are able to sort of take care of your workforce, even if you can't give them an inflation busting pay rise. So I think in the modern economy, there might be different ways in trying to you know think about how to compensate your employees when inflation is sort of running amok as it is right now. And I don't think it will be an exact rerun of what we've seen, uh, you know, most I think painfully, which was in the 70s, which is this sort of traumatic stagflationary experience and memories that the government keep reminding us off because they don't want us to go back into that world. But I think too much has changed anyway that psychologically I don't think we're going to end up back in that world at all. Uh, just finally, Marina, without wanting to um, uh, uh, us to both publicly negotiate our times pay rises on air, what do you think a good pay rise looks like this year? I think a good pay rise is probably hitting above 7 to 8%, so almost double what we're seeing now, but I don't think, I think double digits is going to be quite a difficult thing for people to manage to get. I also, you know, do a sort of straw poll of of my friends and family and ask them, are you demanding inflation busting pay increases from your employers? And most of them are actually saying no. And I don't know if that's really a function of the fact that most modern um, workers are really not used to being in a position where they have to bargain for bigger pay rises or whether they're actually taking on the message from people like uh, Boris Johnson and even the governor of the Bank of England who are, who are telling people to operate wage restraint and Maybe that message is actually getting across to people and they have that playing in the back of their minds when yeah. they think about, you know, the next couple of months when they have to go and, and speak to HR or whoever their manager is about what kind of pay rise there is. Maybe that sense of those warnings um, could actually end up, um, you know, helping in the sense that people will show a little bit of restraint and modesty. I don't think I think that's something that we we haven't really um, thought about uh, yeah. sort of analytically, but I, I, it definitely could happen from an anecdotal perspective, at least. Marine, really good to speak to Marine Khan there, the economics editor at The Times. 
negotiating our pay live on air. Uh, right, but what about uh, government ministers? They're having to make tough decisions right now when it comes to uh, public sector pay rises. And the Bank of England is the, is the organisation in charge of trying to keep inflation down. The official target is 2%. So how might they do that? David Gork is a former Treasury minister under both David Cameron and Theresa May. He joins me now. Hi, David. And we've also got Professor Stephen Millard, now Deputy Director of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, who's worked in a number of roles at the Bank of England. Uh, morning, Stephen. Good morning. Um, David, explain for me, it, actually, you've done both jobs. You've been both uh, Chief Secretary of the Treasury, where you sort of sit and have to say no to uh, ministers. Uh, there is not enough money. This is how much money you've got. You sort out your pay rises. But you've also been a Cabinet Minister uh, in charge of a big department, Justice Secretary, uh, Working Patriot Secretary, where you have to decide... The, the level of, of pain, you know, people making demands to you and that sort of thing. It described to me the government process of this is what inflation uh, is running at. Who, how do you decide what pay rise the people working for your department might get? You've got a problem at the moment that thankfully I didn't face um, when I was a minister, which is very high levels of inflation. Um, You've also got a process with independent pay review bodies who will come forward with recommendations. But from the perspective of the government, there are, I think, three factors kind of going on here. Particularly in the Treasury, you are going to be worried about, one, the cost of higher pay. You know, remember, public sector pay constitutes something like £220 billion a year. So if you're increasing it substantially, that, that, that money has ultimately got to be paid for from somewhere. Second, the point that Paul Johnson was making about the inflationary effects, um, so that if everybody is getting above inflation or even inflation level pay increases, um, depending upon your point of view, it's either going to cause more inflation or it's going to make it more painful to get on top of inflation. So you've got those factors, and that's what the Treasury will be particularly worried about. But there is also the factor that the departments will worry about, to some extent the Treasury as well, which is that you need to be able to pay people enough to recruit, retain, and motivate public sector staff. And um, the problem is that if you take a sort of absolutist line of saying we can't afford this money uh, and we've got to force inflation out of the system, at a time when the labour market is quite tight, there are plenty of jobs around, private sector pay is increasing uh, significantly ahead of public sector pay after a period of time in which public sector pay has by and large been uh, held down pretty tightly, then you're going to have problems. So if I was you know, back at my old job at Justice, for example, I'd be worried about finding the prison officers that we need um, or um, finding the people to work the courts or even you know, e- even recruiting high court judges. Um, you know, If you haven't got uh, a competitive level of pay when there are other options available for people, um, then you're going to have a problem delivering decent public services. Uh, let's bring Stephen in on this. And, and what will be going on in... Uh, the Bank of England right now, Stephen, we're so far away from the 2% um, uh, target rate of inflation, nudging up uh, interest rates doesn't appear to be having a huge impact. Is this, just, is this a point where the Bank of England just will just ride this out? Uh, we just need to let this, this sort of feed through and then we'll try and get inflation back under control. Because obviously the one option is to really bump up interest rates, possibly uh, uh, put the economy into recession, but it would sort out inflation, that would come down, uh, and then we wouldn't have to have massive pay rises. 
Yeah, I think you've, you've uh, put the nail on the head in terms of the dilemma facing the uh, Monetary Policy Committee at the minute. If they wanted to, as you said, they could uh, raise interest rates quite significantly, and uh, that will bring inflation down. But it will bring inflation down, essentially, by uh, guaranteeing a quite deep and sharp recession in the UK. Now, we're, we're in a position where we're tottering on the brink of a recession anyway, so the, so the Monetary Policy Committee has to be really careful. Um, what they cannot do, though, is just say we're going to ride inflation out. Uh, they, they can't give the impression that they're, they're going to let inflation rise because then uh, wage bargainers will think, well, OK, inflation is going to remain high, so I'm going to bargain for even higher wages. And if they do that, as, as both David said a minute ago and, and Paul in his interview yesterday, then inflation will, will be stuck in, if you like. Uh, for for at least a year or two to come. And then the Monetary Policy Committee will have no option but to raise interest rates dramatically. And as I say, probably bring about a sharp recession. David, when you're a minister and you're in this this situation, talk me to what goes through your mind. You're clearly torn, you know, you made the point about recruiting people, but you, you know the reality. Inflation is at this rate. Uh, people are going to be worse off depending on what you, you know, but you've also got a limited amount of money in the pot, how does a how do you as a as a minister sitting at your desk in your department sort of weigh up all those conflicting things? It's it's a really difficult situation, and look the 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 reality is that we are poorer than we thought we were. That things cost more, so you know our, our, our relative wealth is and income is less than it was, and and there's only so much you can do that kind of to escape. Uh, the implications of that you can you can take steps in terms of redistributing the pain, but there is going to be pain there, uh, and and I think you know different departments will 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 have kind of different priorities in the in the sense of the treasury uh, will be very worried as as will the Bank of England be as, as as Stephen has made clear about about inflation and about how we can get control of inflation whilst causing the, the, the minimum amount of harm to the economy, delivering a soft landing. And so the Treasury will want to be quite tight on this, send a clear signal about pay increases. Um, and as I say, I come back to the point that you've also got to find the money. I mean, it's quite it's quite expensive. And uh, uh, government departments' budgets were set before this inflationary surge. So, so anything above... Uh, you know what was expected to be some three percent pay increases is really going to be quite be painful. Either the treasury's got to find some more money, or, um, or 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 there's a shortfall in departments. Um, but as as a departmental minister, your your main concern, frankly, is to keep the sort of show on the road, keep your departments functioning, ensuring that the, they're delivering the public services that you want them to deliver. Just following briefly, then uh, both of you, uh, we'll start with you, Stephen. What what, it, what do you think a good pay rise looks like this year? Well, a good pay rise would be something close to inflation, but I, don't, I can't see that people are, are, are going to get that. Um, the private sector, we, we, we think that uh, pay increases are going to stay around about the 7 to 8% region. Um, public sector, uh, 2 to 3% maybe, but, but really I, I think the point is that different, different jobs, the different professions where uh, you might think uh, people have gone without pay rises for longer, maybe deserve a bit more. Uh, there are, as David mentioned, issues around retention, which uh, which means that in certain areas 
people are going to have to be paid more. Otherwise, uh, workers are just going to walk away. Yeah. And the and the final thing is that you you can imagine on average uh, that that workers in the UK are going to be worse off as a result of the inflation. It, it's been a, a a hit in terms of trade hit in the sense that. The things we buy have become more expensive relative to the things that we sell. And so the economy as a whole has got to take a real income hit. Yeah. But, but that's quite difficult for the receiving end of Sorry, it. but wealthy workers can afford that, but it's it's the poorer workers yeah. that the government needs to make sure that, that they don't wind up significantly worse off. David, just a number from you. What do you think a good pay rise looks like? I just don't think you can kind of determine it from the centre because different, you know, different jobs, there's more competition. You know, in the end, supply and demand, you know, the, the market does operate and uh, it's hard to put a number on. But I'm afraid, you know, we are going to be poor as a, as a whole on average. There we go. See, once a politician, always a politician. David uh, Gore, <laughs> uh, lovely to speak to you. Former Treasury Minister David Gore and uh, Stephen Millard from the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, let's now get the view from uh, the trades unions. Uh, Francis O'Grady is the General Secretary of the TUC and joins me now. Morning, Francis. Good morning. Well, let's start then with uh, that, uh, that, that, that key question. What do you think a good pay rise looks like this year? Well, I think every working family in Britain is looking to keep up with the cost of living. And a fair pay rise is one that's negotiated and agreed. It's got to be a decent and fair offer. And what's very clear, for example, is that if NHS staff end up with 3%, that means an experienced nurse is going to be £1,600 a year worse off in real terms. And she's already struggling. Firefighters, the people who run towards fire when the rest of us run back from it, put their health on the line, they've been offered 2%, a massive cut to their real standard of living. And people have got families to raise. By the way, I've heard so much already in this discussion about pay restraint. When is there ever going to be a discussion about excess profit restraint or restraint at the top you know we've seen boardrooms raking it in we've seen the city of london bonuses rising at six times the rate of average wages you know it can't always be a case that when we hit a problem what do what's the solution hit working people other people need to take a fair share and it's about time that working people especially those key workers who worked right through the pandemic got a decent and fair pay rise. But let's take the example of the nurse that you're talking about. And you, you're completely right. If inflation is at um, 8 9 10% and they're getting 3 or 4%, they're going to be worse off. Given that there is a limited amount of money in the pot for the NHS, uh, as it currently stands, then if you are going to give more money, if you're going to give a big pay rise of 8 9 10%, then there's less money around so that potentially means people leave they don't get replaced uh you end up with fewer people so the people who are there might get a 10 percent pay rise but they're doing even more work and they're overstretched or to pay for a bigger uh pay settlement for the nhs you have to put up taxes matt um, matt people are already voting with their feet we've got one hundred and ten thousand 
unfilled vacancies in the NHS. We've got one in five public sector workers on the verge of leaving their professions for good. This is a problem that the government needs to make the right political choice on. We've got to protect our public services. We should have learned that lesson from the pandemic. But we also need a plan for the economy. If you suck demand out by hitting people's wallets, then they have less money to spend in the private sector, in shops and businesses, and we end up in a downward spiral of low demand and recession. We are headed for recession. The government has to take political choices that invest in our future and certainly hitting ordinary hardworking men and women in key worker jobs is not the way forward. Uh, but but uh, there is a political question. The government could say, OK, politically, it would make sense. It would be terribly popular if we gave nurses a, a 10% pay rise. Economically, the opposite could happen. That Actually, what you end up doing is fueling uh, even higher inflation. Well, I've heard so many of your contributors this morning talking as if wages were driving inflation. It's not wages. There is not a shred of evidence uh, to suggest that. It's global energy prices and food prices. And because Britain's economy, frankly, has been managed so poorly with low investment, low productivity, low skills, we are more exposed than many other economies to the problems that we face. But other governments are taking different political choices. Germany has just boosted its national minimum wage to the equivalent of uh, £10, £34, uh, 34 pence an hour. That's far above what we do to protect the lowest workers in Britain. And of course, we end up with a massive universal credit bill because so many workers uh, are now absolutely uh, in dire straits, in debt, on low pay, and very often on insecure contracts. Instead of uh, hitting working people, the government should be asked why it promised 20 times that we would have a new employment bill uh, which gave us a chance of dealing with issues like zero-hours contracts and full self-employment. And instead, they've abandoned that promise just in the same way they abandoned the promise that they would create a high-wage economy. Uh, just finally, Francis O'Grady, obviously you represent uh, millions of people in unions through the TUC, but the TUC employs 200 staff as well. What pay rise are they getting this year? One that we negotiate. That's always the most important thing is that working people have a voice and that it's done by agreement. But as an, nobody, employer, but as nobody an employer, wants, you're making exactly the same uh, Nobody wants as the strike action in the economy. Yeah. We can avoid strike action if employers sit down with us, negotiate, listen and agree a fair compromise. That's all we're asking in transport, in public services, in the health service. Uh, employers need to listen. Working people are hurting and deserve a fair pay increase. So will staff at the TUC get an above inflation pay rise? It's one that, that's negotiated. We agree what we negotiate. And of course we Francis, on the basis that everything you've said, TUC staff should get a pay rise above inflation? On the basis of what I've said, it should be agreed and it should be fair. That's what we're looking for across the board. And of course, people who work for the trade union movement, all our money comes out of workers' pockets who have joined a union because that's the best way to get a fair deal at work. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.